Hi again, and welcome to Myth Magic Medicine Season 3. Today, my guest is Nadia Mujahid, who is from Pakistan and has been practicing medicine now for several years in the U.S., and is now an associate professor at Brown in geriatric medicine. She's going to talk to us about all the differences, pros and cons, between Pakistani system and here in the U.S. Hi, Nadia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Denise. It's an honor. Thank you so much for inviting <laughs> okay. me. So what, what would you like to start with? Would you like to start with why you decided America was where you wanted to be or because you had family here, you thought it was? That was uh, one of the reasons. So I believe um, I might not have told you my my dad came to Stanford. He was the first mm. Fulbright scholar uh, out, you know, from Pakistan to Stanford back in the 1950s. So, you know, he came he studied, he was here for a couple of years, many, many years. And then my eldest sister came here to do her postgraduate training, also a physician and stayed here. So somehow or the other, it was kind of always inborn within me that I wanted to come to the United States for postgraduate training mm -hmm. once I was in medical school. And I wanted to become a physician, like literally from grade one. And I think my eldest sister was one of the reasons because when she started medical school, I was a very young going schoolgirl, and I just loved the white coat and the big books. I had no idea. <laughs> I just loved you know that. That idea. looks like a fun thing to do. Okay. I know. I Why know. don't we just, just briefly, um, most people don't know a lot about Pakistan, other than it's, mm -hmm. you know, somewhat north of India um, and, and very close to Iran. What, what, where in Pakistan do, do you live, did, is your family? So we are originally from Karachi, Pakistan. So which mm -hmm. is the southmost portion, if I may say, of Pakistan, it is a seaport. So um, uh, the Arabian Sea and the seaport, it's the only seaport in Pakistan. Very big, one of the largest cities in Pakistan, heavily populated because of um, all the economic and everything is there, like every, every headquarter kind of thing. Um, and uh, highly based, I would say, like a lot of educated people, uh, a lot of educational institutes are in Karachi. So a robust, <laughs> it's also called the City of Lights. That's where we are from. Okay, good. So when you decided to study, it was natural for you to, to study in Karachi. You yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes. So you were able to live at home. Oh, yeah. So in Pakistan, one of the differences, because we are talking about differences, you know, in Pakistan in general, I would say most people don't leave to go away for college. Uh, you know, 99% of the population of college graduates would live at home, will go to the college within the city. Very few will go to another city to pursue a specific college or a specific interest. It's very norm for children, both males and females, to stay at home, get educated, whether it's undergraduate or graduate. And generally speaking, they don't leave home until after they get married or they buy a home or they move out of the city or out of the country. How common is it to relocate within Pakistan for training, postgraduate training? You know, because I am from the larger city and a lot of people, I mean, I had all the 
institutes, we didn't have to, right? Mm -hmm. There were few people. Um, it would be hard for me to give a percentage because I don't want to give like misinformed people. Mm -hmm. People would come to Karachi within from within Pakistan to be educated. Mm -hmm. So for example, in my medical school, there was like a 5% seats for foreign graduates and graduates of other, you know, other cities and other provinces. I'm not sure if that has changed because mm -hmm. it's been a while, uh, but there would be like a quota system for those people. Mm -hmm. When you say foreign students, those are people from the East or from, are they, say your children want to go to medical school, are you... Do you think it's reasonable that they might go to Karachi because it's a different system and you don't have to do all that undergraduate stuff first? <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's it's difficult because they will have a difficult time adjusting to mm -hmm. to the language because the primary. So um, the educational curriculum is all in English. Mm -hmm. So I, I studied in English all through my life. I went to a private school. I went to like. English was part of my day-to-day -day activity back home. Mm -hmm. But when you are in the medical school, because I went to one of the largest public medical schools in Karachi, the patient population you're serving is not very fluent in English. They are fluent in Urdu. So for my children to go back home, they'll have to really know Urdu, number one, <laughs> which is difficult uh, to for them to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, but also you have to take into account that if you go, even as a U.S. citizen, they go back home for medical school. Let's say they go to Pakistan or India, anywhere. When they come back, they will have to give the U.S. assemblies and they will be not in the pool of U.S. graduate. So as you know, in residency, there are pools. There are the pool of U.S. graduates, uh, like people coming from the U.S. medical school system. Right. Then there are people coming from the DR, for example, because they went to basic science education back in DR, but they do clinicals in the US. That's another right. pool. And then there's the pool of IMGs, which is anybody else from throughout the world. So um, having them come in that pool would be a little difficult. Because so the pool, the, pool you, the pool you were in. The pool the I was IMG in. Pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, you're competing against like the entire world. Mm -hmm. And very smart kids. Very, very smart kids. Yeah. All right. So let's let's go logically. So you 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 went to school, you had some advantages. You've got, you know, a father who is a doctor, a sister who's a doctor. That's an advantage. You, you have a little bit of the inside track on medical school. You got through a fairly competitive school. Mm -hmm. So I, just to mention, my father was not a physician. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, he he was a PhD. Uh -huh. um, and he was a scholar, but he was not a medical doctor. Um, the medical school was, I would say, um, when I started, it was the first year when they started doing the entry testing. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that there are thousands of students sitting down for that entry test. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, because it was the first year, it was a little difficult. Like I had no idea what I'm getting into. Like, Prior to my... that, it was if you have the qualifications, you can get in. A lot of schools do that in Europe also. You you can start. It doesn't mean you're going to continue. It's just so if you have the basic that, qualification. Right. So prior to that, it really depended on the percentile and the percentage you got in your college. Right. So back home, college is two years. And depending on what percentage you have. So if you have, for example, 90 percent 
and 93%, you're going to get I'm to sorry. the... We, I may have to cut this out just to restart mm -hmm. it, but um, when you say some people say college when they mean high school, do you you at what age are you when you enter medical school? Uh, you're eighteen. You're eighteen. So so college is the last two years of two second. So the last two years of, of secondary education. Yes. So it's not equivalent to it's not equivalent to an associate's degree. No, it's not. No, no, okay. it's not. Um, so you do high school, which is either ten. 10 classes, mm -hmm. uh, which is the matriculate system, or you may be able to do the British system, which is O levels and then A levels. Right. Um, and then if you do A levels, you do not do college, that's equivalent of college. And then you apply for medical school or engineering school. Mm -hmm. um, I did 10 years of school schooling mm -hmm. with the matriculate system and then two years of college um, in which my uh, area of study was pre-medical. So, you know, everything science related. And depending on what percentile and what percentage, what the result is, you know, the top whatever 300 students will get into the first, you know, uh, the top college. And I'm talking mm -hmm. about the public medical school. Yeah. And then the next 300 or 400, the class sizes are huge back back home, will get into the to the other college. So that's how it is. Mm -hmm. And then um, people who might not get into the public school public medical schools, they would apply for private schools. There are one or two really sought after private schools in which people, even if they get into the public school, they really want to get into that private school. They are extremely expensive, um, but they also are, you know, extremely expensive, but highly competitive. Now you're speaking um, expensive based on the local economy. Presumably yes. not expensive like the U.S. system is. Well, the U.S. system is uh, very expensive, but even back home, their semester would be, um, I'll have to do a conversion in my head, but let's say I did five years of medical school for back home in 20,000 rupees, I think. That was pretty much it. 20 uh, or 22,000 rupees. Not each year, the entirety? Five years, yes. Yeah. And the private school my sister went to the Hakan University at that time, I think per year was a couple of lakhs. And right now each year or each three months is a couple of lakhs, like, like thousand times more than the public mm -hmm. school. Uh, so not everybody can afford it. Yeah. Very few people can afford it. But there are there are a number of public schools that people can get into, or is there just the one in Karachi? No, no, no. There are a couple. So uh, two um, main ones that I remember, you know, it is a lot of private schools have come up as well, but there are two mm -hmm. main public schools. And again, the class sizes are um, significantly, the number of students is significantly high. So three or 400 students each class. Um, so each now does the does the first year for the most part pass into the second year or is there a bottleneck? Mm -hmm. Okay, they do. If somebody gets a supply, that's what they call it. Like if they fail a certain subject, they have the um, ability to sit down again for the test mm -hmm. in a couple of months. I think one or two months. Thank goodness I never had to go through it. I don't know necessarily. Um, and then if you pass it, you move on. If you okay. still fail, you stay back. It's okay. Do you have to repeat the entire year or you're able to study just for that one thing that you missed? 
I think if you, so you sit down for this uh, supplementary again, and mm -hmm. I believe if I'm not wrong, if you fail it again, you, you stay back for the entire year. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you didn't have to do that. <laughs> I didn't Did have you? to do that. So now and I'm you, thinking what you happened all... to my friends, you know, a couple of them did had that. Um, and I will tell you, they are pretty strict because it's not only the written examination, it's also the viva. So a lot of times people would do really well in the written exam, but if you fail the viva, which is the oral examination, you have to sit down for the entire exam, which is the written and the viva. And I will also just say this, that back home, at least my experience were, um, it's not only your medical knowledge, but how you present yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes uh, certain professors uh, would be very strict and they will, you know, sometimes we felt like, oh my God, you know, we know this thing, but they would only pass a certain number of students. So it's, it's a little there's, iffy. <laughs> there are a few other schools that have that issue. <laughs> right, right. There's, there's also a few schools that I'm familiar with um, where if, if you are unlucky and you have one of those, maybe the next year somebody else is teaching, so you'll be able to get But then. If it's mm -hmm. if that subject's only that prof, it's going to be really hard. Right, yeah. right. However, that is not... That's not a Pakistani issue. That is definitely a worldwide issue for many of us. So what you you decided pretty much from the get-go, you were going to try and come to the U.S. to get mm -hmm. your postgraduate. But you chose, after you graduated from medical school, to take an internship in Karachi? I did. In the same medical, you know, the, the main hospital I went to was the Jinnah Medical Postgraduate Center. It's the largest public uh, hospital in Pakistan. So it serves a patient population, like, I don't know, um, th from throughout Pakistan, like people from remote cases will come, will travel to come and be seen because it's a public healthcare system. Uh, and as I mentioned, it's one of the largest, it is the largest hospital. So I did my, the three years of clinical medicine was right there because my medical school is associated with it, just back to back, mm -hmm. side to side. And I did my internship there as well. Let's, let's get a little bit medical. What did you see as the, the biggest, most common medical issue that you saw when you were in clinical? Lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will tell you, I saw very complicated patients there. Mm -hmm. I, I When you were asking me right now, I vividly remember this female. And this is like almost 20 years ago that I'm talking about it, almost, mm -hmm. like because I'm talking about the clinical rotation. Um, I saw uh, this lady who had um, a th thyroid mass, the goiter. It was almost like half the size of her face. Mm -hmm. And she had lived with it for many, many years. She used to be, she was living from the most northern portion of Pakistan. And after many years, when she could no longer swallow, that's when she and her family came all the way down to Karachi um, to get it seen. Was she, like, not, was she not able to find a doctor there who was able to diagnose and treat this? Or was it a financial thing? I was think it? like, so a combination, she was coming from a very remote portion of mm -hmm. Pakistan. So there are not necessarily a lot of clinics and hospitals 
even if they are um, I think a lot of people sometimes in Pakistan or maybe in other poor underdeveloped countries will wait until they can no longer function. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of focus on preventive care in Pakistan, if I may say. So uh, imagine having this much of something coming from your neck. Um, it had to be a couple of years. It had to be like mm-hmm. eight years or so. Um, but she, she, you know, I would see a lot of these rare, very complicated things that I've never seen here in the U.S., which is great. Um, but you see a lot of complicated things back home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I trained. I don't qualify as a guest on this show because I was already living in the U.S. And then I went away to medical school. And um, but I commonly saw complications of measles, which Americans had not seen. I routinely saw people who were victims of polio. I very commonly saw tuberculosis. Oh, yes, is, me too. I was just going to say. Which is more common now in the U.S. than it was. But but um, it one of the advantages of training abroad, all you people who think America is wonderful, it is, but you learn to think on your feet a little bit if you're in a country that's underfunded. And and if I may say, I think if I may say my clinical diagnosis is really, really well, because Mm. we cannot order lab work on every single patient every single day. We just cannot, because even if it is a public health care system like the hospital, they still have to pay. So Mm -hmm. somebody who is selling their cattle or a cow to come down to Karachi to live somewhere in Karachi and to seek medical help. I, as a physician or house officer, we had to really think, do we really need the test? The CT scan was, at that time, there was a CT scan, there was a machine, but you, again, really had to justify the use. You really had to even justify the use of x-rays and whatnot. Yes, they were available, but we really, really had to. Now, same city across town from where my sister trained, Ahan, it's a private entity. It's a private hospital. People going there are, you know, it, it still serves a lot of poor community and they have systems to serve the poor community because they use funds, which is charity funded. Mm-hmm. Um, they may have more availability, but a lot of times, for example, people who have means, they would go there and they'll get a CT scan because they are paying out of pocket. Mm-hmm. But here in the hospital where I train, I had to really listen to the auscultation and really pick up. I cannot rely on x-rays to tell me whether there's a pneumonia or not. So I think the clinical diagnosis of physicians who were trained back home anywhere in the world, I think, where there are limited resources, um, you really you really get to pick up diagnoses. Um, Also, the other thing is, and and that is a limitation back home. Again, I'm talking about the public health system, the public hospital. There are maybe four or five antibiotics that you have to choose from. So that might not be the best antibiotic to treat that pneumonia, but you only have those five antibiotics to choose from. And you pick one app and you... You treat the patient and you hope that it helps. And, and the diagnosis is, you know, the, the condition is treated. Are those antibiotics available if you have sufficient funds? Or is there 
just know that from research other places have other things right so there's a lot again, of pharmaceutical companies in india <laughs> in in and in, in pakistan too yes too, yeah but again um uh when we are really talking about people with limited resources, mm -hmm. uh, like people, we really might only have these three or four antibiotics to choose from. Yeah. Um, you know, yes, if somebody is, and there is a lot of charity that happens in Pakistan, quite honestly, a lot of hospital systems may be fully for, for people of low resources, actually fund their medications and their medical illness diagnosis and treatments. But again, um, you know, what if you cannot, then yeah. you have to kind of choose. Mm -hmm. So you, what else you said, you saw tuberculosis. And A lot. And now and... that you're talking about it, you know, um, uh, like here in the U.S., you know, if there's even a suspected tuberculosis case, you know, there are so many precautions, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's this the the flow and the gloves and the gowns and this and that and the respiratory precautions and now looking back you know we had nothing mm -hmm. uh, back home we were just like there will be a curtain and you're you're interviewing those patients and you're taking care of these patients and like they are coughing on your face um and whatnot and you know a thank goodness now that i think about it sometimes we didn't get all these you know diseases it but as a, as a slight aside, is there the same anti-vax movement? Vaccinations may not always be available in, in some rural areas. You sort of have to hope the bus comes by soon and, mm -hmm. and can mm -hmm. vaccinate everybody. But do you do you see any of the same anti-vax movement that we have here? If it's related to the COVID vaccine, there was a lot of initial hesitancy to the okay. COVID vaccines back home as well. Yeah, was I was also I was thinking limited. more of like childhood illnesses oh and yes those things. right yeah. polio so um, in general again in Karachi there wasn't but I will tell you that um actually I take it back there there was maybe not as profound uh but uh with the polio vaccine I remember doing with a bunch of my medical school friends we actually took up this project for community medicine mm -hmm. and we actually went um, in these huge buildings, there were like, you know, maybe uh, 40 apartments in these buildings, like high risers in a, I don't want to call it rural, but in a more um, lower socioeconomic area of the city. Mm -hmm. And we would literally go from door to door, ringing the bells and knocking the doors and convince them to give polio vaccines. And and even then, a lot of people were uh, really good about, yes, go ahead and give it. It was the oral mm -hmm. polio vaccine. And then there were still a lot of people who would say, no, what if there's something? And oh. so, yes, yes, you know. You do. That's, that's now that you're asking me. That's disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I originally trained as a pediatrician. I moved into emergency medicine, but I originally trained in peds and it just broke my heart. When I was an intern, we had to intubate an eight month old who was too young at that time, measles shots given at 15 months. And uh, she had, she had, it was a, an, uh, a mini outbreak, not that many in New York city. You can get a lot of people. Um, and we had to intubate her because she had that severe tracheitis that was sometimes given. Oh, my goodness. She still had a trach when I left fellowship as an intern when she was two. Oh, my goodness. 
Mm, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was my child, but it felt like it. (laughs) But but yeah, it's it's a sad story for it's it's sad that if we are if we have the means to do preventive care and Mm -hmm. we we are not able to use it. And she and she of course was relying on herd immunity because at eight months, even if it had been given, she wouldn't have mounted much of a response, I don't expect. But anyway, that's a sideline. Um, I was hoping it was just an American disease. Uh, oh, we don't want to have vaccinations. <laughs> but uh, the cost know, of them, the cost of them, of course, is is pretty prohibitive. A lot of places. You know, the if I may say, the World Health Organization has done tremendous work in Pakistan and other countries, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. I definitely know the community program that I volunteered with, and I, I and my medical students, like bunch of people. Um, did this, it was all WHO funded. And this was all to help eradicate polio from from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the funds, all of the vaccines were, were coming. So, you know, thank goodness for WHO and other, you know, organizations and NGO. Obviously, there has to be NGOs back home based in Pakistan to help with mm-hmm. this transition and to help reach out to medical students and community physicians to help do this. Mm-hmm. But um, thank goodness for them. Okay, so let's move Let's move you away from Pakistan. You decided mm-hmm. you're coming to America. You'd taken your steps one and two while you were a student or while you were doing your internship? I, um, not when I was a medical student, um, right during the time I was doing my internship, um, I started studying, uh, but it was more towards the end of the internship. And I took a couple of months after that, like another four or five months to really um, kind of polish up. It's, it's a different. I, it's a I different... know I know it's a while ago. Can you remember the things that struck you as funny? Because you're talking about a, a, a different medicine is the same we all have you know hearts and lungs and kidneys and all those bits are all the same everywhere people but mm-hmm. the attitude towards medicine the names of the drugs all those <laughs> all of those things were, were there any particular things that stood, stood out to you? why would they do that i have to learn this because i have to take the test mm-hmm. were there any things that that stood out to you it's been so long, but I do remember, I think it was, so step one, if I'm not wrong, was all like the basic science, mm-hmm. so anatomy, you know, biochemistry, phys, uh, I think physiology, and maybe a little bit of pharmacology, if I'm not wrong. And I was like, oh my God, this is so detailed. I've not learned such detailed pharmacology so so much now, and I have to, or physiology, that things I had forgotten, mm-hmm. because I was doing it after I'd already completed my five years of medical school. So mm-hmm. it was kind of going back in time. Yeah. Um, I think I was stressed. Mm-hmm. Not so much funny, but I was stressed. It's an expensive exam. I wanted to yeah. come here, but I also wanted to do the internship in case I don't match in residency and I do not get the visa. Even if I match into residency as an immigrant, like an IMG, um, I needed a J-1 waiver visa. Mm-hmm. because my residency was after 9-11 and throughout the U.S., the H-1B oh. spots had been uh, markedly reduced. And you were so coming I, from a Muslim country. I'm coming from a Muslim country. And um, it, interestingly speaking, you know, one of the times when I had the visa interview in the 
um, in Islamabad, which is the capital of Pakistan, to come for the U.S. like you know, like a visit visa. Um, and that was when I was in medical school. I wanted to come here for medical school electives, and I did. But mm -hmm. the initial visa uh, appointment got canceled because of the Iraq War. Mm -hmm. So all the embassies in Muslim countries, especially in Pakistan, were canceled. And it was like I, I, I still was able to do medical school electives, but it was now in final year, fifth year, mm -hmm. rather than fourth year. So you know, you have all these hoops and things to to come across when you're coming from an that aren't country. always that are, aren't always something you can map out there can be some right right absolutely so i did my internship to make sure that even if i do not match in the u.s residency system or do not get a visa i still have the ability to practice as a physician and do postgraduate training back home in pakistan then mm -hmm. um so i actually gave my u.s emily's um, January of 2006. And then six months later, or five months later, I did my step two CK. And within a week, I hopped on the plane to come to the US. Uh, my sister already lived here. So it was easy. And then literally two weeks later, I gave my step two CS. She wanted me to apply for the 2006 residency match, like do get into the math cycle at that point. Mm -hmm. Um and she was literally after me. <laughs> she was. She would call me. No, I'm serious. And there was no WhatsApp. There was no, right. like, you know, those internet free calls at that time. She would actually call me and say, hey, are you doing it or not? And initially at that time, I wanted to delay my USMLE step. You have an extension of three months. I wanted to do it. And she's like, you better not do it. <laughs> <laughs> you need to get into the system and apply because what if you don't match? You will apply next year. But if you don't, if you keep on delaying, she was of the impression that the longer you wait after medical school graduation, mm -hmm. the harder it is to get interviews and to get into a residency. It's spot. absolutely true. Two years Which is, is, true. is re two years is hard. Five years is impossible. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. So now that's the you you flying from Karachi mm -hmm. to the left coast. <laughs> You're going off to California. Mm -hmm. How long, how long before your exam? You had time lags and all sorts of things to get over before you took the exam. <laughs> Two weeks. Oh, I come to Los Angeles. I get picked up. She's in San Diego. I will go to San Diego, uh, maybe a day or two of rest, which is a blur. Um, I come with all my books for step two CS examination. And I just literally at home alone, I'm just reading and trying to practice and making sure I do the soap notes on time because it's a time limit, right? Right. And then within that time, I'm getting on a plane to go to Houston because my step two CS exam is in Houston. I get no dates anywhere else close by. Like LA was one of the sites, but I didn't get a date. And again, there was a time crunch. Um, I gave my US step two CS, um, I believe late August, again, like literally back to back to back. And I just then wait for my exam results. I do not have the result of step two CK. I do not have the result of step two CS. Uh, I passed step two CK, but I'm waiting for CS. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, I'm applying for residencies. Um, I applied throughout, not in California, because in California, they needed the California letter. They need, uh, there's more, um, there's an increased, um, 
uh, if I may say, you have to have something in addition for California residency programs, which is a California letter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did not apply in California. Where yeah, my you mean, sister was you mean a letter of recommendation from somebody or a specific form? I think it's a specific form that you need to get. And because I was a recent graduate, it needed, um, and they need to have it in place for applying for residency. Mm-hmm. And because I was not, I needed some time to get it done from my medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is in addition to, for you to practice any medicine in California. Mm-hmm. So I I took California off my list, but I applied um, widely throughout the US. Um, and I basically, you know, widely, but I literally was looking for residency programs who will um, interview IMGs and who will be able to offer a G1 waiver. So mm-hmm. my my application and my a lot of time was spent searching these things. Um, and a lot of programs like, you know, you know, people from Pakistan, like, you know, a family friend or somebody, siblings, somebody. Um, but a lot of the programs that I got to know were offer had offered H1B visa. But mm-hmm. now that was not a choice. So, you know, your your pool becomes even smaller. Um, Actually, there will be a lot of people of the people who listen to this. It's not a massive audience, but although doctors are very familiar with the term J-1 visa, most don't really understand what it is unless they've had to use one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and very few people understand all the H-1, H-2 visas. Those are, are very... So can you speak very briefly to what the criteria are for those two? Sure. So... Um... A G-1 waiver or a G-1 visa is the, if you get into a residency in the United States, the ECFMG, which is the one that kind of overlooks the postgraduate training in the U.S., will send a letter and say you have received, um, you know, you're in, uh, let me think. It doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't uh, oversee U.S. graduate. It, it it's the umbrella that all foreign trained people must be under. You have yes. to be certified by them in right. order to proceed. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And then what you basically a J one waiver is that you will be granted a visa to stay in the United States for postgraduate training. It can be as long as seven years. So you can do three years of residency and up to four years of fellowship. So a total of seven years in the G1 waiver. But the point of a waiver is that after you are done with the postgraduate training, you return to your country of origin for three years. If you decide not to return to your country of origin, you basically will be Uh, you need to go to a remote area in the United States and practice medicine for at least three years. And and underserved. Right, underserved. So a remote area could be remote area in the middle of Midwest, or it could be an underserved area. And it could be an area that is basically catering to the Medicare and Medicaid population. Right. I checked, I I didn't have a J-1 visa, but... um, I trained in Manhattan, which is hardly an underserved area, but it's got huge pockets of underserved communities. Right, right. So those of, of the people I trained with who had J1s most certainly would have been able to remain in New York. Right, and they right. had and hospitals able to give them J1s. It's not that 
a hospital doesn't feel nicely towards immigrants, they have certain criteria they have to meet in order to offer J-1 visas. Absolutely. It's not open to everybody. Your contract gets renewed every year. Mm -hmm. I've never had each one, but from my understanding, it is a visa that, again, your hospital will sponsor for you if you qualify. Yes. The H1, H2 system is different. The basis upon which your residency in the States is based, you serve oh. served population. Okay. Right. Right. So I did my three years of residency in family medicine in a J1. So you've applied, you've gotten a place on the opposite side of the country. So now you're in <laughs> Rhode Island, which makes me feel great because I'm in Delaware. My state's bigger than your state. <laughs> Two tiny, tiny states um, with, you know, a, we've just passed a million population. What's population Rhode Island? Somewhere similar. <laughs> I have no idea. I'll have to Google it. It's, 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 you know, probably more than a million, if I may say, just on top of my head. It's the smallest state, but it's a very heavily populated state. Right. Let and me it, put it this way. And it is also the home of Brown University, which is definitely a, right, name, right. a name most people will recognize. So, right, right. Exactly. So, so you got a residency there. Mm -hmm. how, how hard was it to adjust from... California to Rhode Island, quite different climate. Very different climate. <laughs> um, you know, I had a very different mindset, if I may say, Denise. Um, mm -hmm. I was not really looking for location. I only had, so I'm just going to give you one uh, quick um, more information. I was very lucky to get into residency. I I gave all these exams. I applied for residency. I started my research. I got no interviews until around after the Christmas of 2006. Mm -hmm. So most of the interview slots are already gone. I got ECFMG certified December 22nd, 2006. So right after Christmas, when likely the offices and the, you know, the, the secretaries uh, were back to work after Christmas, they saw that I was ECFMG certified. So within a week, I got three interviews. Good. But that's not a lot. You know, you, you know no. that. And no, but they're that. not, they aren't bad ones either. I mean, that, that was. Right. And uh, all three were in the specialty I'd chosen, which was family medicine. And mm -hmm. I was, I was just going to give the best shot ever to my to the people who had actually invited me for interviews. Mm -hmm. So in January, I went to all over the place. I came to, um, I had one interview in Milwaukee, um, remote, remote area, family medicine. I had another interview in West Virginia. And then my third and last interview was in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I go back, I wait, and then, um, uh, you know, I, I magically match at Brown for family medicine. So when I moved to Rhode Island, the weather was different. I had no family. I didn't have a sister and a brother-in-law and nephews, right? I do knew people here in Rhode Island um, through my sister, her sisters, you know, juniors from medical school and whatnot mm -hmm. but my my mindset was very different I was there for I was here for three years I was going to do the best possible job I was going to learn a lot 
and then I'm gonna go and maybe live somewhere close to my sister mm -hmm. that was my mindset uh, so you know weather and cold and snow was not something that I was fixated <laughs> on or thinking about uh, I was literally on the get-go you know head down learning doing what mm -hmm. I needed to do and making friends and whatnot and making a community but literally my mindset was very different at that time it was a temporary it was like being in college this is yeah, where I, I am was, now but not this is what life. I am and and I was very grateful I was like they have given me the opportunity so I'm gonna do xyz and I'm gonna do the best thing possible I was the chief uh, scheduler in my third year in family medicine, the chiefs are generally in the third year. So I was one of the chiefs. We had a total of four chiefs. I was one of the chiefs. Almost at the end of my third year residency, I was always interested in geriatrics. I was like, you know, maybe I should do a attending position for three years because I did not want to go back to Pakistan. I wanted to go and take care of the waiver position. So going to pick up a job to do the underserved population. Mm -hmm. And then I remember one of my attendings mentors in family medicine, Dr. Goldberg said, why do you want to go and do an attending position? Why don't you just go and do a fellowship first? It's a year. Mm -hmm. And then you can always go back to, you can always go and start earning as an attending. Mm -hmm. um, and I took it as wise and I applied to one geriatric medicine fellowship program here in Brown because I just wanted to not move for a year. And so you, I had done- That was not, it hadn't been on the radar, geriatrics? It was, I was contemplating, but I was not kind of, I, I literally had already interviewed for primary care positions, mm -hmm. a couple of slots. And again, because I needed a waiver, I was looking October of my third year in residency. So I was looking almost eight months before I was graduating. Uh, you only have 30 spots for a waiver position each state. So mm -hmm. Rhode Island is a very small state. It has 30 spots and so has Texas. It's a huge state. Crazy. So the competition in Rhode Island is not as robust as in other heavily populated states. Um, so I was looking for primary care positions and I'd interviewed a couple of places. And then he mentioned to me, why don't you just go and do the fellowship? And I was like, you're right. And I had done my geriatric medicine electives at Brown, uh, again, um, across, uh, within the same city. Mm -hmm. um, and I literally just, you know, went and I did an application and they called me for the interview and I got into it. And I'm so blessed to, to have had that opportunity. Things just lined up. Mm -hmm. In the start of the fellowship, I thought I'll go back to being a primary care and I never did. Uh, within two or three months of me being a fellow at Brown Geriatrics, my division director called me and asked me if I would be interested in joining them as faculty. Um, so, and it would be an academic position. It would be a new program that I would be starting uh, as a geriatric co-manager with an orthopedic surgical subspecialty. And it was for me, um, again, things just lined up. It was a robust opportunity. I would be doing a waiver in a huge academic teaching mm -hmm. center. I would not be moving cities and places. And um, it was an opportunity with a lot of growth. Mm -hmm. 
and and I said yes, and I've never left it. I've never looked back. You you don't see any any reason to move from where you are now. I see even no even reason. the weather, even the even the weather. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> at what you know, point? At what point in all of this did you have children? Because I know you got two small children. Uh, I did not had any children during my residency or fellowship. Mm-hmm. I was in attending at least three years when I decided me and my husband decided, okay. Uh, okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. And you know, my husband is a physician too, and we did three years of long-term mm-hmm. relationship because when I was doing my fellowship, he started his residency uh, out of state. Um, and uh, I, I, we we had both decided we don't want to have any children until we are back to living together. Yeah. Um, and it made sense for us. Yeah. What's his residency? What was his, his residency was in Louisiana. He did internal medicine in Shreveport, Louisiana, and then moved back home to do his um J1 labor requirement. Was Rhode Island home for him or just where he'd gone to medical school and then moved? No, he's from Pakistan too. Uh, same medical school as myself. <laughs> Rhode Island was home for us, uh, the entirety of me coming here as a resident. And when I was doing residency, he was working as a research assistant at the BI Medical Center up in Boston. Mm-hmm. So he used to take the train early morning, go there, uh-huh. do his research, uh, and then come back. That's nice. Okay. So let's... We, we talked about what, what was the difference between your your Karachi internship and the one you got to do again here? Because you always start at the beginning in America. Mm-hmm. Very occasionally, that's not quite true. Very occasionally, people will place into fellowship um, if the people are senior physicians coming from abroad. But um, right, the, right. General, the general thing is you basically start again. And no matter how experienced you are abroad, you will have to go through some degree of graduate medical training in the U.S. in order to have a license. This is not so in many countries, but Absolutely. here it is. Here it is. So, what you must remember internship, if only because it was such long hours. <laughs> both of them, both of them, probably very long hours. What was the biggest difference for you? Um, or or surprising similarity? Yeah. <laughs> So I will, um, I, uh, now that I'm thinking about it actively uh, while you're asking me this question, so the patient population was very different mm-hmm. for me. Um, if, although I did three years of family medicine, it's a community hospital and you're basically again serving people in the community. A lot of them are on Medicaid and Medicare but there are also people who are coming from different aspects of life and whatnot. When I say the patient population was different, here I was seeing in family medicine, you know, pregnant women delivering their babies and doing a whole spectrum in family medicine. Mm-hmm. Back home, uh, there is no family medicine per se. You pick up a specialty, kind of like specialty in the sense that you pick up either internal medicine or surgery or OBGYN. You mean as as a trainer, as as a a trainee, as a trainer, a training. So you training because it's, you know, a general practitioner is roughly equivalent to family practice. here. It's a bit different, but in the UK, it's now a separate training. It didn't used to be. You just, you either did that or you specialized. So in, in Pakistan, you, you have to train in something or at the end of your, 
Okay. So, so the, you, even if you want to become a general practitioner, you will do internal medicine. And a lot of people will do OBGYN because as a general practitioner, you will be seeing a ton of pregnant females or a female of childbearing ages. And you should be very um, confident and accustomed to treating, taking care of women of childbearing ages. Um, again, contraception is available, but um, again, the general practitioner and mostly females will prefer a female physician taking care of their gynecological and obstetric needs mm -hmm. back home in Pakistan. So a lot of women physicians would do OBGYN, you know, six months internship and then internal medicine to become a GP, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, here I was doing everything within a year, you know, I was delivering babies. I was taking care of newborn babies. I was taking care of elderly. So that was different for me in family medicine. And it was challenging as well. If I may say you do two months of OBGYN in family medicine here, you get really, really, really good at it. And then you go, the next ward is internal medicine. And you see nobody prenatal, you're really taking care of pancreatic pancreatitis and CHF and pneumonia. Mm -hmm. So you you switch a lot, but also that makes you really learn a lot mm -hmm. in family medicine. The other thing was back home, I pretty much knew the system, right? It was the same hospital where I had done three years of clinical medicine. The professors, some of the nurses knew me. Um, the people who were doing internship with me were all people from my hospital system and from my um, from my medical school. So that was also very different. And it was, you know, doing a very hard part of my training, but doing it with friends. Mm -hmm. um, we would also cover each other. So at nighttime, if three of us were on night calls for internal medicine, you know, two will stay awake and one will say, go lay down, sleep for two hours, come back, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Here, I knew nobody uh, in internal medicine, in my residency. I was and, just- And even if you knew somebody, you weren't going to be allowed to do that. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes. And then there, you have to have multiple people on call because mm -hmm. it's a very big ward. Here, it's like one intern on call. And then mm -hmm. there might be another senior but it's a very different, that kind of system. How, when you were on duty mm -hmm. during the day, not night call, obviously is different, but during the day, how big was the, was the actual patient load for you? Not the emergency, come here and help me, I need another body. But how many people were you responsible for as an intern through which you had to report through the ranks to everybody else that was responsible? In Pakistan or here? In Pakistan first and then here. Um, you know, uh, in Pakistan during morning hours, because there was a lot of house staff, we didn't had a lot of patients, maybe five people. Okay. And so Eight. here, here, it was, it, it, was, was it would, it was much more, you know, yeah. seven to eight, there was a cap of 10, no more than 10 when I started internship. And, and when you were a third year, how many were you responsible for? I because think obviously um, all the juniors were reporting to the higher. Right. Team. So in the UN. When I was training, I usually had 10 or 15 people as an intern and or maybe nah, 10, 10 to 12. But as a senior, I at during the day, I had two interns under me. Mm -hmm. So as a senior, I would have both of theirs to worry about. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> and at night, I had multiples <laughs> to worry about. Right. One right. So I just want to look at the the patient load. Um, I think as a senior, you pretty much had the interns, you had two interns and the interns each could carry 10. We tried not to give them 10 maximum because that was a little bit too hard for them to complete, especially mm -hmm. because when I became the senior, they were work, our restrictions for interns. So we were, I was supposed to carry, you know, like follow up on imaging and things like that anyway, but you could have a total of two or three by yourself. So maybe like 20 to 23 as a senior. Um, we tried not to have that max because we thought that that's too much for even a senior resident to, to uh, related to patient safety, basically. And one other patient difference was also, um, if I may say, the patient how they treat physicians back home mm -hmm. physicians are treated like like literally like kind of gods and goddesses they would respect you a lot like literally they would be again i'm talking about the public health the largest hospital system where i trained and i was serving as a house officer mm -hmm. so me going in they would be literally um giving me a lot of greetings putting me like treating me with the utmost respect um, and also like really thanking for the services. They were very grateful, the patients and their families. When, like I would say like to the point that as of they are uh, like kind of worshiping. Kind yeah. Of. So we don't really want that, but we would like respect for our yes knowledge. yes yes you don't want that either you want to be worshipped it's a, it right. is a job in some ways right but it's a right. job that comes at, it's not just i do this for several hours and i get money at the end of it there's a whole lot of other costs to the position right. and i think we want recognition of that right and now i mean here it's like yeah depends they might respect you or they might say, okay, you're an intern. I don't know. Where just, is the attendant? Yes. That, <laughs> you know, there's or, a lot or, of... Or I just looked this up and they suggest on Twitter that I should do this instead of your brilliant advice. Yes. <laughs> and, and here, I will be honest with you. So back home again, there's that. Another difference, if I may say, is um, uh, something that I've encountered, not uncommonly, uh, in the U.S., um, I am in academia, I am in, uh, as a faculty, I work very closely with fellows. Mm -hmm. It is not uncommon over the last couple of years, especially over the last four or five years, that I've had uh, fellows who were older than me, and they were males, because they went on to doing something else. They did primary care, or they did something else, or they mm -hmm. went into primary practice, for five or eight years, got burnt out and came back to doing geriatric right. medicine fellowship. Mm -hmm. And they would go in seeing a patient. They've already seen the patient. They go back with an attending, um, uh, of attending female physician. And the patient's family is um, asking all questions to my male fellow. And That's he's saying, this is Dr. Mujahid. She's the attending. And, we, and they're kind of totally ignoring uh, this position least, and then calling me Nadia yeah. um and, and now, do you, that, that, in, in in fairness do you think that is the politically correct here um the propensity for there to be nurse practitioners around 
is I, I when I first went into practice after residency and fellowship, I was in a rural area in the US mm-hmm. and I was one of a dozen doctors on staff. Everybody else was male and that were a couple of hundred. So most patients assumed I was a nurse. I, I mean, I dressed differently. I had a different coat on. I had a stethoscope around my neck, not in my pocket. And I would walk in and introduce myself as Dr. Villain, <laughs> not as Denise. And yet they would not, they would, nurse, nurse, nurse. <laughs> they didn't know how to. And I would walk in with, especially Burns, you in July, I'd walk in with an intern and they would direct mm-hmm. the questions to the male intern. <laughs> right, right. I I don't know. I think it's just some inborn biases that people have that I think we are noticing more now that mm-hmm. we are aware ourselves. I think I might not have noticed it 10 years ago or eight years ago. I'm starting to notice it more now. Um, uh, thanks to all the courses about like biases and whatnot that we have gone through. Do, you're like, oh yeah, that happened and this happened. Yeah. Do you think that the male non-attending with you is aware of it and will help correct I all yes all of my male uh, fellows who this it, with, it must particularly must be difficult for the male fellow who's been out in practice and he's been the head dog there for a while right. then to be go into training again that must be a hard right right hard and change. Then, you know um, and he would always say well I'm remember I talked about I'll come with my attending physician she's my supervising attending yes like kind <laughs> of clarifying yeah. um not that I want anybody to do anything but I just noticed that um other one other last thing in the interest of time I would say that back home uh sharing bad news you almost never do it with a patient yes, yes that is you, something you pretty much, and again, I did it almost like, you know, it's been a while that I practiced back home, but the whole idea is you tell the family and the family decides how much and whatnot the patient needs to know. This is a lot of, um, I, I know here in the US, in the Western countries, it's all about patient autonomy. It's about patient right. Back home, it's all about protecting the loved one for a bad diagnosis or terminal illness that they might not be able to change, but they also don't want their loved ones to give up or to get depressed or or whatnot. Right. So I have seen it both ways, mm-hmm. back home now, versus how, here as well. You're, you're not a surgeon. So yes, how do yes. you deal with informed consent if you don't give them all of the information? I'm not assuming, surgeon, assuming, assuming that they are competent to, to make right, a right. So again, back home, um, I never really encountered that kind mm-hmm. of, you know, consent or something like that. Here, I actually take my own consent for you know the code status and thing. As a geriatrician with orthopedics, pretty mm-hmm. much everybody is a full code, and mm-hmm. I walk in the room and I a lot of times it's a DNR DNI after I have had my conversations. Now, when patients are going for surgery, it's very reasonable. They be a full code. But a lot of that is also that after the surgery for hip fractures, which I commonly right. see, um, that the patient or their family member requests that, you know, please reinstate my DNR. Because, yes, I'm going in to give myself a chance to recovery and therapy and walking again. 
but I don't want to be resuscitated in, term, in case of a cardiac arrest. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for spending all this time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Denise. Take care. Thank you for joining us at Myth Magic Medicine. If you have found this episode useful, you can apply for free CME credit through the link provided in the transcript. If you're not a medical professional, please remember, while we're physicians, we're not your physicians. So please consult with your own healthcare professional if you think something you have heard might apply to you or a loved one. Until next time, bye-bye.